Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start in Vancouver with the new housing plan here that was laid out yesterday by Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim. He wants to build a lot more housing in the city. He wants density, especially around SkyTrain stations. I got uh, Adil Danani standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to the mayor here. This is Ken Sim speaking yesterday. Vancouver is going to be the best city on the planet. That's what we're striving for. So I think it's okay to be bold. The role of the city of Vancouver is to create an environment where we can build more housing of all types as quickly as possible. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Adil Danani, Danani Group of Real Estate Advisors. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Adil, thanks for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you bet. What do you think of this plan? So he is, uh, he's not wasting, Ken Sims not wasting any time. I mean, he, uh, He's, uh, I think, living true to his uh, platform policies or his, his commitments uh, to British Columbians. I mean, first, it was the, the missing middle, uh, you know, rezoning um, more infill um, uh, product, triplex, fourplex, multiplex. He did that. And then yesterday, he has um, put forward a, a seven-point housing policy that's going to push forward more high density along, like, the areas that need it, you know, like uh, Renfrew, Rupert, um, VCC, Clark Station. These are areas that I think there's a huge opportunity to add more add more homes to. Yeah, you know, I sometimes get a little deja vu when I hear this stuff because I, it feels like I've been hearing politicians say this forever. You know, we need to build more stuff. We need to cut red tape. We need to, we need to get approvals going more quickly. Uh, do you think... I don't know. You obviously seem impressed with the announcement. Do you, do you think this time is going to be different? Yeah, I, I do. Um, I think the sentiment's totally different. The conviction around what the mayor's saying is, diff- is different. Um, and remember, um, like we've talked uh, in detail in past uh, uh, interviews about, um, about the municipalities being really the gatekeeper of, of, of housing stock. And yeah. Ken Sim yeah. is at the head of that in Vancouver. And, you know, he's got a mission. Um, if you look at some of the comments yesterday when he put forward the policies, like we just need more housing. Uh, one of the counselors came out and said, what about affordable housing? He's like, let's get more housing out there. Let's see how that impacts affordability. Um, because at this point, um, talking about affordability without bringing on more supply is almost a moot point. Okay, let's, let's have a listen to him uh, uh, speaking again yesterday. This is Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim yesterday. And here he is talking about they need more density, more homes, especially around SkyTrain stations. Let's listen. SkyTrain stations are the envy of many, yet there's a lack of homes surrounding not one, not two, but multiple stations in our city. Yeah, and he identified some stations that where he feels there needs to be denser housing. And he also specifically referenced the city of Burnaby as maybe a model. So what does that mean? He wants to build high-rises around these SkyTrain stations? I mean, Burnaby's done an incredible job um, building density around Metrotown, Brentwood, City of Lougheed, which is approved as well, bringing on, you know, I think uh, collectively, you know, 40 towers just in those three locations, um, you know, multiplied by 300 homes. I mean, that's a lot of residences, right? So, of course, this needs to be clearly thought out, can't just be um, quickly brought um, um, to, to council and brought to market. Um, but I think master plan communities are the future. Like if you go to Brentwood, the amazing Brentwood, 
there is a certain uh, lifestyle offering there, right? You could do, you could pretty much, it's, it's essentially now a standalone hub outside of the city. Everything from shopping to groceries to, um, you know, going out for a drink, um, doing your banking, going to see a doctor, it's all there. And I think that's what they're trying to create, these hubs outside of the city. And I think if Vancouver carefully plans this, you know, the downtown core will obviously be the core and it'll be the hub. But um, but I think there's so much opportunity in some of the stations that are some of the stations on the outskirts of the city that we could see a lot of high rises coming up in the future. Yeah, and especially do it without necessarily having to have a car to get around, right? Maybe you wouldn't even need a vehicle if you've got convenient rapid transit right outside your door. Maybe you don't need a parking spot. Like, is that Would that be part of the plan, too? I think so. I mean, you look at the size of these homes um, and, and the trend right now is everything's going smaller. Um, yeah. And oftentimes parking is an upgrade now, even in the even in the suburbs. Before it was in Vancouver, you'd pay additional for parking. But now, you know, parking still comes with a $50,000, you know, it's a hefty price tag. And some folks that are just getting into the market, and you talk about affordability, well, let's let's strip the parking stall from the price and let's bring more affordable, sizable, you know, functional units to market. And I think you're going to see that. A lot of units now coming to uh, coming to market in the future aren't going to have the, the parking or parking will be an upgrade. Um, and they will, you know, I think the, the neighborhoods that are connected to transit um, offer those urban amenities will be certainly be the winners um, going forward. Speaking to Adil Danani, real estate expert, talking about the Vancouver housing plan laid out yesterday by Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim. Let's listen to Tom Davidoff here uh, from UBC. He likes this idea of towers near SkyTrain stations. Let's listen. In areas where you've got sewer and electrical all built out, there's lots of low-density stuff, even near SkyTrain, certainly near bus rapid transit, uh, where you could build much taller buildings, accommodate lots and lots of people. And uh, doing so would take some of the pressure off the uh, rental and condo market. And I think that would be a big help for people trying to get in. Yeah, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it, Adil, when you're talking about a city like and a region like Metro Vancouver, where we're kind of blocked in by mountains and the ocean, that if you can't build out, you got to build up, right? You got to build taller towers. What do you think would be the the public reaction to this, though? Like, are people in those neighborhoods going to say, yeah, sure, put up a 60-story tower next to me? What do you think of that? Yeah, great question. Um, I I think that, um, I think the reality is um, this is the future. Vertical living is is being embraced by most community communities across uh, Metro Vancouver. If you're if you're looking at the city, like the East Bank, these are a lot of these uh, sky train stations that he's noted are uh, on the east side. Uh, I think if you carefully block out, you know, um, a map or, or draw out a map, you know, for four or five, six city blocks from, you know, more um, uh, more rapid transit stations, then I think you're going to get some support. I, obviously, it's going to it will push land values higher for sure in those pockets, right? All of a sudden, you're a single family or duplex zone property, and now the city may look at approving those as high rises. The value, the sheer value or land lift for the development upside will be significant for those homeowners. So that'll be interesting going forward to see how, how property values are impacted. All right. Talking about this housing plan here in Vancouver laid out yesterday, Adil Danani is my guest. Should we build these high-rise towers next to Vancouver SkyTrain stations? Now, yesterday, Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim said this is what we have to do. We have to build up 
He said Burnaby should be the example. We should build these towers. Specifically, some of the SkyTrain stations mentioned yesterday, the Nanaimo station, uh, the 29th Avenue SkyTrain station, those are on the Expo lines. So those are some of the oldest SkyTrain stations. The Renfrew station and the Rupert station on the Millennium line targeted for this type of development. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Adam and Burnaby. Hey, Adam, go ahead. Hey, Mike. Yeah, so I live uh, right around uh, Metrotown, just between Metrotown Station and Patterson. And, uh, yeah, it's just a great quality of life. I have, a, I have a vehicle I use for work, but outside of work, I use it maybe less than once a week. It's just, it's great. I feel like it's a great way to increase the population without um, putting more strains on the road and infrastructure. And, uh, yeah, I'm all for it. It's not for everybody, but I think it's a great solution. What do you think? Okay. Do you think if uh, if some of the people in these neighborhoods start squawking and say, we don't want these high-rises here, do you think the, the city should just say, look, we, we can't start caving in to NIMBYs now. we got to build up. Do you think that's what he should do? Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. But, uh, at, yeah. you know, at the rate our population is growing, I think we don't have any other option right now just to, except full steam ahead, basically. It's only yeah. going to get worse if we don't get on top of this thing ASAP, you know? Right. Thank you for the call. Adil, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I completely agree with the caller. I mean, there's certainly lifestyle benefits to these master plan communities. I'm just outside of Brentwood personally, where I live. And uh, there's, you know, we, we, you can walk to the grocery store, get your banking done, grab your coffee, you know, morning uh, morning bakeries. It's a pretty fantastic lifestyle. Like 15 years ago, if you, if you rewind 15 years ago, that lifestyle was only available in the city core. And now yeah. you don't need to go to downtown if you don't need to. It's all there for you. So I do think there's certain benefits. Um, I think, obviously, the drawback to it is going to be more traffic, more people. But uh, the reality is there's more people coming, and uh, we need to accommodate for them. Back to the phone lines. Pete, did I speak to Peter already, or is it Peter? Peter and Burnaby. Hi, Peter. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. So, Hi. yeah, your, your previous caller and Adil making ideal points. There's a positive and a negative, though. The idea of going up and doing it strategically, ensuring that the construction is good construction, yeah. That's the positive side of it, and we've got it here at Brentwood for the most part. But I'm going to give you the flip side. The city also has to take responsibility for recognizing what happens when you add that many new people to a community. Security, safety. Uh, I'm going to tell you, TransLink is not a good partner. They do not take responsibility in the overall scheme of things. The city uh, has been pretty good here in Burnaby. They are responsive, but you got to make sure that it's coordinated and that you think about the impact that it's going to have on that community so that you ensure that that transition to a a greater number of people is going to be uh, uh, received in a positive way. Yeah. Yeah. Good points, Peter. Thank you for the call. Tim in New West. Hi, Tim. Go ahead. Hi, how are you doing, Mike? I'm good. Go ahead. Um, So I'm going to speak to this on the blue collar level. I'm the uh, supervisor of a couple of departments and a major elevator company in the Lower Mainland. And what I can tell you is there's a major labor shortage for anybody in the construction trades, especially yeah. the elevator trades. And the more we go up, the harder it is to find technical people to build these taller, faster buildings. Um, if you're talking about a guy that's got to come in and build an elevator and maintain an elevator that's doing six, eight, a thousand or plus feet per minute, you're not getting the guy off the street to do this. 
Yeah. It takes lots of technical training. And around the lower mainland, the, the elevators and the buildings that are on the books are going taller and taller. And there's not enough people to maintain these. I think the whole idea of going vertical is great. Yeah. But we just do not have the people in the lower mainland to take care of this or even all across Canada. Thank you, Tim. For thank you, Tim. I'm telling you, man, that's a great point. This is like the reality check on this. Yeah, we do have a shortage of these skills for sure. Howard in New West. Howard, you got 30 seconds here. Okay, Michael, keep it brief. I, I live in New West uh, in a high rise near the SkyTrain. It's a five minute walk away, and it's just a marvelous way of life, and it's fantastic. I think that's really the the best solution is to go up, and especially if you got uh, SkyTrain stations nearby. We have a high rise going up nearby. I think it's going to be over 50 stories high. And that's in New wow. West. And, uh, you know, and that's making, uh, you know, life around the SkyTrain stations, you know, a, really a, a good way of living, I think. Howard, thank you very much for the call. Adil, we're following this closely. Thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Okay, let's talk about crime and public drug use in Metro Vancouver. We discussed this on the show yesterday. I talked to a concerned mom from New Westminster, Carmen Dunn, and she is helping to organize a a public forum on crime in the city of New West, and particularly in her neighborhood. Some of her descriptions of, of her neighborhood in Uptown New West yesterday I found quite somewhat shocking. I I didn't realize it was as bad as it sounds in this particular part of New Westminster seems to have started gotten worse with decriminalization of drug possession and also the shutdown of the tent city on Hastings street in the downtown East side. Did a lot of people move out to this part of new West where there's been a lot of trouble. Okay. I've got new West city councilor, Daniel Fontaine standing by. Let's have a listen to Carmen here. Now she used to live in, gas town she's got young kids she said she wanted to move to a more suburban setting for her children and she said it hasn't worked out as she hoped in this particular neighborhood in new westminster here she is describing how her car was very quickly broken into after she moved there and listen to listen to her story here i went out into my car and the seats were reclined and i'm like that's odd and then i saw the glove compartment was empty and put two two together I looked into the cup holder and found drug paraphernalia. And so I realized that people broke into my car and they did drugs. Okay, as Carmen Dunn speaking yesterday, she was advised by police after that to make sure the car was thoroughly, thoroughly clean to remove any potential residue from fentanyl, especially when she's got young kids in the car seats in the back. Let's discuss with my guest now, New West City Councillor Daniel Fontaine. Councillor, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Okay, I know this is a key concern for you. I know you heard the interview yesterday. What do you think about what Carmen had to say there? You know, I listen very uh, to hear, you know, stories like Carmen, uh, unfortunately, be uh, retold over and over and over again uh, within the city of New Westminster. Unfortunately, Carmen's story is not uncommon. Carmen is the voice of a lot of moms and actually a lot of dads in the community who are increasingly concerned that the issues of crime and safety within um, the city of New Westminster um, are just not uh, being addressed properly. And I, it, it really, it, it's 
it's difficult to listen to as an elected official in the city when you hear uh, people like Carmen. We want to attract people like Carmen into our community. We want the community to grow. We want young families to to come to New Westminster. And stories like what we heard, um, you know, her walking over, uh, literally over dead bodies in her back lane and, you know, people screaming and, and shouting at two, three in the morning and her her kids having to be exposed to that. It's just, um, it's not something that I think is congruent with um, with what, uh, you know, the people of New Westminster want to happen on their streets. Yeah, can you describe, like I asked her yesterday roughly where she lives in New West, and she lives in the uptown area of New West. Can you just, can you roughly describe that that area? Yeah, I, it's, it's, I think technically it's Brow the Hill, but it basically is okay. the center of the community. If you were uh, to look at a map of New Westminster and were to kind of uh, drop a pin right kind of in the, in the, the heart of the, the, the city, that's yeah. pretty much where it is. There's a lot of um, uh, three-story kind of walk-ups as well as a commercial district in Uptown. So there's a mix between business and, and residential. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a nice neighborhood. It, it should be uh, free of crime. And, um, uh, you know, whether you live in Queensboro or Uptown or Brow the Hill, everyone deserves to live in a community that they're not having to face the kind of uh, carnage that uh, that Ms. Dunn is facing. Yeah. How about the area around uh, Pier Park? Yeah, Pier Park is a whole other um, uh, area of concern. I continue to hear reports, um, albeit anecdotal, but from residents who have now essentially stopped going to Pier Park. And Pier Park, for uh, your listeners who aren't familiar with it, it is on the Fraser River. It's yeah. right in the downtown core. And unfortunately, it's had a couple of, of issues happen to it. One is because of a large development on the waterfront, it's effectively become a bit of an orphan. It's it's cut off from the rest of the, um, uh, the waterfront uh, boardwalk. And as a result, um, there's a, a number of incidents there of gang fights, of, of stabbings, of attacks. Um, I had someone who sent me an image of a public toilet that was filled with needles and drug paraphernalia, and it's really become a very scary area. And unfortunately, it's a beautiful park. It's right on the yeah. Fraser River. It should be our jewel. It should be a place where tourists and families and everyone um, enjoy seeing. And right now, unfortunately, it is it is for uh, the better part a no go zone. And I know that um, I don't recommend anybody go there even during the day. I I personally have been there, and it's I, I don't feel safe. Yeah. Speaking to New West Councillor Daniel Fontaine, let's listen to a little bit more of Carmen Dunn on yesterday's show. She's a concerned New West mom, uh, concerned about the drug use and crime that she's seeing in her New West neighbourhood. Here's another part of the interview yesterday, and then Councillor, I'll get your thoughts. So here's Carmen yesterday. Regular drug users in my back alley right now, and this isn't like the 90s when there's kids smoking pot. Like This is Hastings-level stuff that's going on in my back alley. And I'm watching it as I'm cooking out my, you know, the kitchen window. My children are watching it from their bedroom window, you know, and we're dealing with overdoses on our street. Okay, it was interesting that she described it as kind of a Hastings Street level uh, situation there. And, Councillor, like I've heard that I had a caller on the open line yesterday, who, who, a, a New West resident who said, you know, this seemed to get worse when they shut down the tent city on Hastings Street in uh, the downtown east side. Your thoughts? Yeah, again, it's going to be hard to quantify that, but but Mike, it's really hard to ignore uh, what 
what you're seeing on the streets of New Westminster. And I and I must say that the timing of it, uh, just I live in the downtown core area myself in the Keyside neighborhood, and I have seen a real spike in at least visual uh, uh, representation of, of public disorder on the streets uh, in New Westminster since there was the crackdown in the city of Vancouver. And it's hard yeah. to imagine that, you know, these individuals who are many of whom are down on their luck facing addiction, mental illness, homelessness, uh, if they're being pushed out of the downtown east side, they have to go somewhere. And and Mike, we have five SkyTrain stations. We have the highest, I think, per capita number of SkyTrain stations in uh, British Columbia because we have five for a very small city. And it's very easy to transport yourself from the downtown east side to uh, downtown New West or other parts of the community. Um, it's one of the reasons, you know, Mike, my colleague uh, Paul Minhas and I introduced a motion to council to actually set up a crime and safety committee. We don't have one at the city in the city right now. We 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 do have a police board who takes care of those policing issues, but unfortunately, um, the the that motion was voted down five to two. There was no interest on the part of our colleagues to actually establish a crime and safety committee, which might address from a city perspective, some of the concerns that Carmen Dunn um, has raised. And I'm frustrated with that. And but th and that's one of the reasons why um, I'm co-hosting along with Councillor Minhas, the Crime Forum on November 8th. And I've been blown away by the public response and, and the fact that we're almost at this stage, almost to the point of being sold out. So they're, and yeah. it's, they're free admission, but the public interest in this crime forum uh, is is tremendous. We have three great speakers and Dave Jones, the former police chief, uh, Cash Heed, who is the former solicitor general, will be there as well as Shirley Heafy, who is um, an expert in RCMP, uh, has an RCMP background as well as having been on the police board. So uh, I'm, I'm thrilled that the public's uh, interested in attending. But Mike, we have to go beyond talking about this stuff and, and which is what we're going to do on the 8th. But I'm hoping we start coming up with some solutions and some action so that people like Carmen don't have to face what um, she faces every day. Okay, let's listen to a little bit more of what she had to say. Carmen Dunn, a concerned, she's a concerned New West mom speaking out here, I think, quite bravely. Here's another part of the interview yesterday. Then, Councillor, I'll get your thoughts. You know, my mental health has taken, um, you know, I'm dealing with severe anxiety now. You know, um, you know, when I'm home alone at night and my security lights flash on, you know, my body goes into fight or flight. I'm worried there's a man on my backyard again. Yeah, I mean, it sounds re I really felt for her yesterday when speaking to her. Do you think that, I mean, we're about, what, nine, ten months into an, this experiment with decriminalized, decriminalized drug possession? So 2.5 grams, the legal possession limit for, you know, super dangerous drugs like fentanyl, heroin, crystal meth. And we've seen a lot of, have you seen more public drug use in New West since that happened? I have. Uh, I have no doubt about that at all. And w w I have also seen, um, you know, incidents where people are taking drugs right next to uh, children's play parks, both in public areas and in private places. I've seen um, it, it just proliferate um, throughout the community. And, and there's the police are basically tied. Their hands are tied behind their back. They cannot do anything. They cannot even ask individuals to move along. Yet the irony is, if I walk down the street in that same area with a bottle of beer or or a vodka yeah. cooler, yeah. I, I face ramifications. It It's so bizarre to me that we've created this situation where people can be on one side of the street taking hard drugs and, and the police can't do anything. Yet if I consume a, a, a Molson Canadian, somehow I'm going to face the wrath of the law. Yeah. We've, this is bizarre.
Just yeah. absolutely bizarre. No, I agree with you. Now, the, the provincial government has recon- said, like, okay, we realize this is a problem, so we're bringing in some new restrictions on where you're allowed to consume drugs in public. So the rules that the government has introduced here with you are not allowed to smoke crack or, or do any of these hard drugs within six meters of a storefront door. So I guess like if you're seven meters away, I guess you can you can smoke crack. You cannot do drugs within 15 meters of a public wading pool for kids. 16 meters, I guess, is okay. Does this make any sense to you? I mean, should there be just be a total ban on public drug use? Mike, I, I go back to the fact that if I walk along a public street with a bottle of beer, I'm going to face yeah. ramifications. I'm not stigmatized because I happen to be breaking the law by drinking a beer. It's this whole notion that somehow we're stigmatizing people by telling them, please don't consume your crack cocaine on a public street. It To me, if, like everyone I talk to, like Carmen Dunn and others, we just don't consider it acceptable that in our day and age and in our society that people can consume these, these hard drugs or any kind of drugs in a public area like that. And I, 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 I do feel for the government. I know it's a challenging policy uh, issue to deal with, but making it at legal 15 meters and not 16 meters isn't resolving the problem. We yeah. have to get more mental health beds. We have to get more treatment for these individuals. We have to uh, you know, make sure that we, we find a pathway for them off of drugs. And I think we're sending the wrong message by, by uh, well, we're reversing it now provincially, but by decriminalizing it on every single street and every single park or beach in the province of British Columbia, it's a social yeah. experiment gone wrong and it's having impacts on our streets. New Westminster City Councillor Daniel Fontaine is my guest. We have lots of phone calls here. Jared in New West. Hi, Jared. Go ahead. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. Go ahead. Good. So uh, I've been in New Westminster downtown running my business for about 30 years now. Our family's been here coming on 75 running our business. The 90s was really scary. We had a lot of open drug use. The mayor of the time, uh, Mr. Wright, came in with the police and really worked hard and cleaned up the city. It really, I, I saw a huge change from the 90s on. The Waterfront Park was a big part, new towers, young families. And what I'm seeing now is it's really upsetting and it's scary. I don't, you know, I don't want my family coming down to, on a weekend to have lunch with me. I don't live in the city. I just run my business here. Uh, I, I think the mayor is a big problem right now. I think the progressive left, I, I don't think they're acknowledging and dealing with this problem properly. If you go onto Front Street, there's open drug use. There's people going to the bathroom in the streets right now, probably. I've called 911 for multiple fires. And these are, you know, people high on drugs, fires next to buildings. I have photos of it. It, It's crazy. Open drug use, fighting, just people so high that you don't want to be anywhere near them because you just don't know what they're going to do. I had a guy come in my shop with a mask on, and I don't think he's worried about COVID because he's doing a lot of drugs. And he had a 12-inch knife tucked in his belt. Like, oh. you know, he didn't do anything, but is, is he sizing me up? Is he looking for opportunity? I don't know. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's just, it's not a safe feeling when you have that around your neighborhood. Jared, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for the call, man. I appreciate it. Counselor, your thoughts? 
Well, again, uh, Mike, uh, I've heard, sadly, uh, this story from your caller. Uh, I can't even count how many times I've heard it. And it does have to be treated seriously from the mayor right on through to the entire council. And the fact that, you know, council had the opportunity to set up a crime and safety committee, they they declined it. I'm not sure what, what motivated them. I don't want to comment about that. But all I can say is that we have to take this seriously. The mayor has to take it seriously. The entire council does. I mean, this okay. gentleman, I mean, if he's concerned, imagine if you were a senior or, or uh, um, you know, a woman walking on the streets downtown. I hear from them all the time. They're they're super scared. So, yeah, sure. absolutely. Jake in New West. Hi, Jake. Go ahead. In New West for about uh, 20 years, I live in uh, in the Key and basically, I'm seeing a huge um, decay, um, if I can call it that way. I mean, that's a harsh word, but it's a huge decay of what's going on in uptown, in downtown, in the key. Uh, I mean, you know, for the council to say that the park is, he would not recommend to go to the park. That's that's pretty serious. I, I live close to that park. I've been to that park. Um, bottom line is, uh, you know, I have two teenage kids and uh, I don't like them traveling in the evening uh, by SkyTrain and walking towards uh, towards our apartment uh, on the waterfront. Okay. With, Jake, you know, th- thank you. Thank you for the call. Boy, boy, we got more calls coming in. Counselor, we'll just have to have you back real quickly. Uh, are there still tickets available for the, the town hall on crime? Um, as I checked this morning, there's only a handful, Mike, but there is an open wait list that we're going to set up. And in case people do cancel, people can get on the wait list and we'll let them know and we'll we'll let them in. It's November 8th at In at the Key and they can uh, just check online through Eventbrite to get a ticket. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me on, Mike. and drive get off of that telephone you all over the road and you ain't looking where you're going all you do is yakety yak and you ain't looking where you're at so honey hang up and drive get off of that Okay, a hang up and drive, get off of the telephone. Let's check in with Paul Doroshenko now, traffic lawyer, Acumen Law. It's always great to have him on here. Hey, Paul. Nice to talk to you, Mike, and I'm so happy all- to hear Junior Brown. I love that song, <laughs> and I'm listening to it all the time. Yeah, I kind of like it, too. So you know, when we talk about distracted driving, hang up and drive, as, as the guy says in the song there, you're just yakety-yakking, not paying attention. For a lot of people, it's not just yakking, yakking on the phone. It's like texting on the phone is the big problem, isn't it? It's a huge problem, and I see people drifting ahead as they're uh, moving up to the four-way stop right in front of my office. They've got one hand on the phone, and they're looking down, and one hand glancing up at driving and it's uh it's a it's a real risk yeah remind me again of the penalties for this because it's not just the ticket there's there's other stuff on top of that right sure yeah first time out it's a 368 dollar fine it's four points on your license and so that's going to trigger some other consequences with the superintendent of motor vehicles you likely looking at a a uh, bill for driver point premium uh when your birthday comes up and if you get more tickets that'll just continue to add up and if you get that and uh, either another one of those, uh, like two electronic device tickets, or you get another serious ticket within a two-year period, 
there's a pretty good chance the superintendent of motor vehicles is going to send you a uh, notice of intent to prohibit you from driving for four months. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Paul, you're an expert in fighting tickets in court. Can you fight a distracted driving ticket or if they got you, they got you red handed, you're you're cooked? Oh, you can certainly challenge it. And this is what we do, right? Uh, We file them in dispute. We go to court. We talk to the police officer. We review their evidence. Uh, Police officers don't always remember things perfectly. Sometimes they struggle to testify. Sometimes you show up in court and there's the court so overbooked that it ends up adjourned. Uh, sometimes the police officer will just concede with you in the hallway that they don't remember it well enough to be able to testify against your client. Sometimes the, uh, the person is just sunk and you know, you're dealing with a police officer who's likely going to get it all together and a rare occasion you're pleading somebody guilty, but the consequences don't get worse if you have a trial, right? And you're entitled to a trial. You have a right to a trial and you're innocent until proven guilty and they've got to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. So You've got all of those legal protections there uh, to make sure that uh, that you know you can you can challenge the ticket. Okay, Paul, you and I were chatting yesterday about the BC government support for the Vision Zero mandate for traffic uh, traffic enforcement and traffic highway design. What is that? What is Vision Zero? What is that? Sure. So uh, I guess it was probably about a decade ago, there was a uh, scholar, I think at UVic, who came up with this theory that we should be aiming for zero traffic deaths uh, in British Columbia. And of course, we have, you know, a few hundred traffic deaths every year in BC uh, for various different reasons. But the aim was to go to zero. Uh, And it seems like a bit of a utopian goal on the one hand, and you're sitting there thinking to yourself, maybe this is completely unrealistic. But the government you know, signed up with this thing uh, and decided to go that route. And, and, you know, I guess it's nothing, there's nothing wrong with having that as a goal. Uh, anybody who's lost a loved one in a in a traffic accident is looking at it saying this was something that was avoidable because, you know, for the most part, most of the time they are, right? And sometimes it's, it's something that you really couldn't have predicted or something unfolds in a way that you wouldn't have expected. Sometimes it's a, a you know, landslides and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but this is the government's goal. And so they publish these uh, reports on their website, usually with no fanfare, talking about sort of where they're at. And they always talk about having further goals, but they never really lay anything out um, in that respect. But is it realistic? I don't know. I don't think it's a realistic thing. Uh, is it fine as an aspirational, uh, aspirational goal? I guess, yeah. but I don't know. I don't. I don't tell my kids to set unrealistic goals. Yeah. Um, and here, the government's telling us that we should have an unrealistic goal. Speaking of traffic lawyer. Paul Doroshenko. Hey, Paul, when we take a look at some of the accidents that we see on our roads, of course, impaired driving continues to be a, a problem. Can you tell me a little bit more about this? If there's an accident, can police test for impaired driving after an accident has occurred? So if the police pull you over, they can just make a demand for you to blow into a breath tester. But if they arrive afterward at an accident scene, they can't do that. They have to elevate their opinion to a suspicion that you've got alcohol in your body. So in other words, you have an accident. The police officer comes. He's investigating the accident, not investigating necessarily any criminal offense. Uh, And if the officer detects an odor of liquor on your breath, for example, or sees empty empty, uh, alcohol containers in your vehicle or you admit to drinking, then they can make a test. But otherwise, they can't compel you to provide a breath sample. And, and this is 
partially because of, of uh, certain charter obligations at play, right? You're detained at that point and you don't get to talk to a lawyer because it's not really convenient to do so. And it's a warrantless search. So a warrantless search has to be authorized by law and the law has to be reasonable. These are all charter obligations. But the thing is, you know, there's times when really the police should be able to do that. And in particular, like when school buses have accidents or when big Whoa. trucks have accidents and police officers have told me over the years, like they'd arrive at the scene of an accident where there was a big truck. They're not dealing with, you know, the, 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 uh, dealing with the driver right away because they're dealing with all of the other things to secure the scene and everything. And in the meantime, the driver has three cigarettes and smokes, uh, chews a pack of gum and there's no odor of liquor on the driver's breath. And they're looking at him. There's something that causes them to think that, you know, I'd like to make a demand here, but I can't. And so, you know, talking to the, uh, to the police over the years, I thought, you know what, truck driving and driving these heavy vehicles is a heavy, heavily regulated activity. And you should be able to take it outside of that that sort of realm where we've got this charter protections and and frame it differently for these heavy vehicles. And I've written to the uh, to the Minister of Justice to suggest a change to the criminal code that would allow the police, if they arrive on the scene um, with a, an accident with a heavy vehicle, you know, a, a heavy truck, uh, class four and, and heavier, uh, that they could just make a demand. Uh, for a breath sample in those circumstances, um, you know, a lot of these times you're looking at, you're looking at the accident and you think, wow, this is really an hard to explain why this truck driver did what he did, uh, and you'd like to be able to test the truck driver, but right now you can't, and it's just a tool that I think the police should have. So I've I find that kind of that's very weird, especially yeah. if, like you said, if there's, let's say there's a checkpoint or a roadblock that police have set up in, a, in an impaired driving crackdown, they can, in those situations, did, like police have the legal authority to, to request a breath sample really with no, for any with reason? no grounds at all. All they have with to no have grounds, is a yeah. lawful stop. Yeah, so if yeah. they stop you lawfully, you know, a, a check stop is a lawful stop, right? If right. they stop you lawfully... They can just make the demand, and they probably should just make the demand rather than trying to form an opinion, right? Um, yeah. The only problem is that, like, historically, we had these senior police officers who would show up at these accident scenes, and, you know, they were very experienced, and they could form that suspicion that the yeah. person had alcohol in their body and, and be able to articulate it and explain it, because it's got to be objectively held. You know, you have to have grounds for it. Uh, but now that we're seeing a lot of junior officers out there, the officers show up. They're not accustomed to dealing with these sorts of circumstances. They're not maybe as attuned to it with the same amount of experience. They can't think of the steps necessarily. Uh, and it would just simplify the ability for the police to be able to acquire this information and, and promote responsibility too. But it would simplify it in these circumstances, particularly where you've got these big accidents, because lots of times the police officer is not even getting to the driver for 25 minutes or half an hour after the accident. Lots of calls to Paul Doroshenko. Let's get right at it here. Guy in Coquitlam. Hi, Guy. Go ahead. Yeah. Hi. Um, yeah, I was just in the courts a few weeks ago. And uh, so, you know, you're going on Barnett Highway towards Port Moody. So I went in there to dispute it, and uh, so now they have the uh, the officers um, at the courts, you know, to greet you there. So, so he was saying, well, you know, 
he goes, okay, so let me look at your ticket. He goes, oh, so that's the 80-60-50. He goes, he starts laughing. He goes, all right, so what do you want to do with that? And he goes, I go, well, I don't know, maybe try, try to get it reduced. I know I'm guilty. Well, what, 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 was, it, was, it a, was it a speeding ticket? Yeah, it's a speeding ticket. Yeah, okay. so basically, it, it almost feels like it's intentionally underinflated, the speed limit, because it's it's like you're trying, you're going from 80 60 to 50 it's like it's impossible like you see people just it, it's it's still kind of like you know it's a two-lane sort of highway so you're, okay. you're slowly gradually you're slowly gradually getting to the light but it's like you know to try to give you a ticket you know at 50k and you're going maybe 59 or 60 so is it like a speed would you say it's a speed trap it's a, oh, oh definitely <laughs> it's a speed trap i mean how many yeah. times have you, have you gone through and you you know you see a police officer on a downhill. I mean, yeah. you know, it's like, come on, guys. Uh, like, well, how did how did the ticket how did the ticket work out? Did he reduce the fine or no? Yeah, he reduced the fine. He says, oh, you okay. know, I, I understand, and so basically, he's understanding that it it really is a trap. So okay, you know, a- guy, thank you for the call, Paul. Your thoughts? Well, one of the reasons that we usually don't bring our clients there is because we don't need them uh, as witnesses, but also the police officers, as soon as they see your face, uh, everything sort of comes back to them and it makes it a lot easier for them to testify. Yeah, this is a common spot where a lot of people get caught. Uh, Police often actually set up on the tops of hills because you don't see them until you get to the point where you're sort of cresting. And a lot of people are uh, feel the excitement of pressing the accelerator down and climbing the hill. Uh, but oh. yes, uh, it's uh, it's uh, uh, an interesting experience going to traffic court for these things. There's no doubt about it. Steve in Kelowna. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Going, Mike. Good. Good. Go ahead. Um, so uh, it took about a year and a half to get to court, but I finally got to court. I got I got a ticket for uh, being uh, on my cell phone, but I was hands free as I am right now with you guys, and. Uh, and uh, I saw the officer. He looked me in the eye. I looked him in the eye. I said, to, "I said to my wife, like I'm about to get a ticket. I think I'm going to hang up." And I did the whole, you know, got my phone to hang up, hands free. He pulled me over, and he said, "Why were you on your phone?" I said, "I was, I was hands free." He goes, "Yeah, but you're on your phone." I'm like, "But I was hands free." He goes, and he goes, "Here's your ticket, three hundred sixty-eight dollars. Oh. You could fight, you could fight it if you wanted." So I disputed the ticket. It took over a year and a half to get to court. Uh, I get to court. I see the officer. He goes, uh, "Here's what we'll do with you. Uh, if you plead guilty, uh, you pay the 368 bucks, and I'll drop the points." And I go, "Yeah, <laughs> but I didn't do anything wrong. I was hands free." And he goes, "Well, I have it in my notes that you had your phone in your hand." I said, oh. "But I didn't. I didn't have it on. I, I didn't." And he goes, "It's you against me, man. You want to go to court?" <laughs> and I said, "This is this is coercion." And then this other cop stood up and he goes, "What? What are you saying to us?" I had two cops staring me down. I'm like, this is crap. And so I, I, I went and called my wife. I'm like, what do you think I should do? She goes, just just pay the 368 bucks and save your license. Mm. So I paid it. And then they said, do you have anything to say? I said, yeah, I'm totally innocent. I was hands-free. This is crap. And uh, they took my money and let me go. Wow. Oh, Steve, thank you for sharing that story. Paul, what do you think of that? Well, he had the opportunity to have a trial. Of course, the police there have their version of it. Uh, You're lucky that you didn't end up with those four points on your license because $368 is a small amount. 
sounds like you were innocent. Uh, and of mm. course, you can have confidence in the court uh, and run a trial, or you can make what I think was probably a very reasonable decision uh, to plead guilty as a registered owner so it didn't show up on your license. The police offering you that is a bit of a lucky day. Uh, it doesn't happen very often. Um, but uh, yeah, it's always your word against the police, right? And, and, and when, um, in, a, in a situation like that, when it's your word against a police officer's word, the judge is going to side with the police officer, typically, I imagine. Or do they? I think most people think that. Um, yeah. And I don't know that, that that's necessarily the case. The, the um, JJPs, the judicial justices in traffic court, see all of these police officers all the time. And some of them, they probably are not as uh, comfortable with their evidence as others. And, you know, it really depends on the evidence in the case, I suppose. Uh, but um, it, the, the, the credibility advantage, I guess, that that people are assuming the police will have uh, is is not really to the extent that I think people think it, it exists. OK, uh, because, of course, you know, but the, the issue is that the police officer knows how to testify. Sure. And most people don't. Right. Yeah. Greg and Delta. Greg, you got 30 seconds here. Go ahead. I'll be brief. Thanks for taking my call. I uh, still see people driving distracted on their phones. You pull up to an intersection, you look around, there's people on their phones. The current mechanism in play doesn't seem to be making a difference. What are your thoughts if they were to adjust the traffic laws to, if spotted on your personal device, they could immediately impound the phone for six months or some other uh, impact of the driver? Impound the phone. Okay, Paul, 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Not a chance that that's constitutional. Uh, your phone has everything in there. It's your diary. It's your like most personal thing. It's like taking your 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 every, everything you've got. Half the people use their phone to start their car, to to open their door of their house. There's no way that they can seize phones. Um, and I don't think it's really a reasonable thing either. Also, you're innocent until proven guilty. So that's punishing somebody right from the start. There's ne that's never going to happen. Uh, okay. The that uh, we need more enforcement of anything. Paul, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.